0: Welcome back to another episode of Come Over for Dinner. I am so glad you're joining me today. Today, I have a very special guest from Tennessee. Her name is Tilly Dillahay. Her husband, Justin, is a pastor, and they are parents to three girls and one boy, ranging from age eight all the way down to a five-month-old baby. She is an author of a couple of books that we will talk about here in a minute. She co-hosts the podcast Home Fires with Abigail Dawes. They do this seasonally. And she has written in the past for the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God. So welcome, Tilly. Thank you for
1: having me on here. I'm excited to get to know you.
0: Yes, I'm so excited you're joining me. We are recording through Zoom because she is currently in Tennessee and I'm currently in Idaho. So, yeah, but I can okay. tell that you're not from Idaho. You are.
1: <laughs> you and I have some pretty similar twanginess going on. I can hear you. This where is are you true. From?
0: Texas, Arkansas area. So it's Texarkana. Okay. It's a border city okay. of both states, and so yeah, I claim wow. both. I was born in Texas, and then of course back and forth across the state border all the time for a okay. long time. I lived on the Arkansas side. All but, right. You know where I was born, and, in Texas. Yeah, so hopefully no one needs an interpreter out there <laughs> <laughs> between the two of us. Huh? Between the two of us. You know, a lot of times if you get with another fellow Southerner, somehow uh-huh. your accent just comes out more
1: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. so hopefully we'll not do that to each other today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that mine. It's been a little bit. Yeah, it, it is funny. My husband is, is from the back, backwoods, you know, you know, deep Tennessee and his accent. Accent changes when he's with his family. His his vocabulary changes. Like, he changes the words that he's using, and it's really fun. It's really entertaining. I like it. But,
0: Some of the yeah. phrases he used in childhood yeah, yeah, it just, just came yeah, just out. things that like
1: came, came yeah that I've never heard before. Sometimes what is what is that? what is that,
0: yeah, mean? Like, what is that phrase? Yeah.
1: That's great. Yeah, cold is a wedge. <laughs> cold <laughs> as a wedge. But there's there's several just really what does strange that even mean? little ones. I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I've thought I've sat and thought hard about that one. And I just, I still don't
0: know, (laughs) but I like it. We need an interpretation. Someone needs to write a chip, Dry as
1: a chip. Dry as a chip. And there's several others. I need to write them all down.
0: That's pretty great. There's a lot of Southern ones too. They're not popping in my head, but occasionally I'll Uh say them and my kids kind of look at me Uh like, never (laughs) heard that. Everybody knows that expression. Yeah. So apparently I haven't taught them all the things they need to know in life. Yeah, obviously not. Speaking of authoring a book, that would be an interesting one. All the sayings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, the two or three that you have currently authored, the first one is Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy. The description I'm reading, it says, what do you do when envy clouds your heart? You know that feeling, don't you? That heart sting when someone else receives the very thing you desire. When your best friend announces her engagement, when your sister says she's pregnant, when your coworker gets the promotion, you tell yourself you're happy for her, but you feel a hint of something else. That something is envy. Mm-hmm. What if in those moments you were able to turn away from the green glow of envy and see the spotlight of God's glory shine on your friend? What if your first response was Joy. And then it just talks about how you, in your book, talk about seven common sources of envy and challenges the reader to change the way that you think about God's glory in order to rejoice with others and experience greater contentment and really love others, especially your neighbor, your friends, as yourself. So tell me just a little bit about your inspiration for writing that book. That is definitely, I would say that that book was the most. Most personal of
1: the books that I've written, probably, because the whole the whole instigating factor was my relationship with my sisters. I have two. I'm, I'm one of seven kids, and we're in this in the Nashville area, kind of in the music scene. I grew up in the music world. My dad was in music. He had us in the studio from the time we were pretty little. You know, just just part of the family culture. And I did a jazz CD when I was 15 or 16 with him, and then when I was Up in college years, the girls that are just just next to me in the family lineup, the girls just younger than me, they started a band together. So this band that they started was kind of a like an indie band. And this was like in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, you know, so they they joined up with two brothers and they went on the road and they just started making like amazing, beautiful music. So I have a really, I have a, the story that kind of opens the book is the first night I went to hear them and I had not ever heard what they were making because they were kind of shy and secretive about it. You know, they were teenagers and they just hadn't ever played it until they did this little coffee shop gig and we all went to hear them and just the, the shock of sitting there in the room listening to these original songs that they had written and, the, and, and the instrumentation. I'd never even heard them play. I don't think I'd ever heard them play any instrument, but they had they learned guitar and, and mandolin and uh, ukulele. So they, it was just, it was a gorgeous first show that they did. And I, and I mean, I still can, can go back to that moment and remember that horrid kind of horrified feeling that I had hearing that lovely music. And it's just that, that I, you know, it affected me so much emotionally as music does, but that one of the main emotions that it, you know, inspired in me was actually this kind of horrified being upset that they were the ones making the music and it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And so from then on, you know, there were years after that of me going to their concerts and then kind of getting their next C D and tucking it away in in a drawer, not looking at it and having a really tough time talking about the music with them or with someone else who was, you know, admiring it. And I did not have any language for this at the time. You know, I was I'd never read anything about envy. I'd never really noticed a lot of scriptural references to envy before. So I think a few years after this, I really was thinking about it a lot. And and during that time, I happened to read C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. That essay, it's, it's, there's a collection of essays under that title, but the, the actual essay's title is The Weight of Glory, It's a sermon that he gave. A lot of people love it. What it did for me was it gave me some language about, about why human beings share this glory from the father and kind of need the notice of God and are, and are waiting for this, this gaze from him and this sort of well done from him. And that played into my understanding of why I saw this glory that what, what, what I was seeing in them was so powerful to me because I, I wanted some of that. I need, I had this appetite for this glory that really only comes from God, but he, he places his image on people and so people can really be astoundingly intimidating and and astoundingly impressive and and also you know you can have that kind of hatred reaction to the glory that they possess
0: because it's real glory mm-hmm. you know do they still record or was it just a time when they were younger like teenagers
1: that's such a good question I did not finish that story because I always I always do that I tell the beginning of the story and I I forget to say. Oh, by the way, um, some, <laughs> these are some of my closest friends now, who I love and appreciate so much, and we're raising kids together and having a wonderful time. Do they I, all I live in Tennessee. They're all in Nashville area. So I'm I'm an hour east of Nashville in like a tiny little town, but they're all still kind of in the Nashville area. And they stopped their band when the babies started coming. That's basically the short version. And they still, I think they'll still do things for fun now and then. We. I mean, we sang together this last Christmas. We did a little thing together. It was really fun. But neither of them are professionally recording. So,
0: Do you think that them being closer to you caused a stronger reaction? Because a lot of times we know of great singers, but they're far removed from us. And so we admire them. But maybe it was a stronger envy because it was your sister's. Right, And it wasn't you performing with them or being a part of it, or maybe you saw a glory in them that you had not yet accomplished in some way in your life. Right. So maybe that closeness causes a stronger reaction, but also what you're saying, wanting to have the glory of God displayed through you, it doesn't sound like a bad thing. How do we keep that from turning into envy, that Mm -hmm. desire? Right. Yeah. I mean,
1: so... What you're saying about it being a peer, a peer thing, envy is definitely, it's all about a peer relationship. So it's whatever you're doing, that's where you look for the envy. If you're a singer, you look for it with singers. If you're, you know, if it's about hospitality, you could have, you know, if that's what you're really caring about and trying to do, then that's where you need to also look for, you know, the possible flare ups of envy. And it would be among, among you and your peers. It wouldn't be you and, you know,
0: something. Right. Most of us are not. Super envious of something that we see on HGTV, right? Or maybe even Pinterest. The actual tough envy would come with probably somebody you're close to in your community, correct? Someone just built a brand new house, or Mm -hmm. someone just came into an inheritance, or you know, whatever it is. All of a sudden, you see them rising. You know, speaking specifically of hospitality, or yeah, they have a gorgeous home and you don't, or whatever. So yeah. yeah, a lot of times it is, it comes out stronger when it's closer to us.
1: Right. Cause that's who you would compare yourself to, you know, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but as far as just the, that appetite for glory, that, that has been a really helpful thing through the years to think about just that our appetite for glory is a real, is a genuine good appetite. Really. It's almost something that when it shows up, up as envy it's just a weak version of the appetite that should be stronger because it should be strong enough to to set us out on the hunt for God himself you know and his his glory i mean if if we if we can see other people and recognize glory in them and we do every day when we encounter people we see their glory if we have eyes to see that then all we need is that next step to recognize the connection between that glory that we're experiencing in another person and the God who put it there and the God who is that thing, the, the God who's kind of the thunderous version of that little baby cousin version of the boy that he, he possesses mm-hmm. put that in them as, as like a little shard of a mirror that shines his glory right back, you back know, that others can see too, that we can enjoy. And I just, I guess I think that the more our capacity grows for just being full of Christ and enjoying him, he himself, his attributes and his, who he is and delighting in that. That's, that's a soul expanding thing that we do when we feast on him. And it becomes a capacity for enjoyment of glory that we can then go and use everywhere else because his glory is everywhere. He's spread it all over. So not only are we able to enjoy, you know, just physical things that he's, given us as gifts, but we can also enjoy these glories that he's stamped people with. And I have just experienced this kind of shift through the years of being so amazed and blown away and excited when I see a new kind of glory and a new kind of person that i would never identified before, where you almost become this, you're just like a hunter or something. You're a, I don't want to say connoisseur because that sounds really Tasty or something. But you know what I'm saying? Like, um, you're able to
0: recognize the gifts that other people have and have joy for them and joy yeah. in seeing that versus envy and uh, desiring and grasping it and wanting it for yourself.
1: Yes. And I do also think there's an age part of this that the older you get, the more grateful you are for just any good thing that you can ever find anywhere mm-hmm. because you know how much of a battle between ugliness and beauty and and evil and goodness, And you see so much evil and so much just difficulty that when you see a good thing in someone, you're just more and more grateful to find that
0: anywhere. Yes. I know when I was younger, when you think about wanting to become sanctified and a better person, you do notice the glory of other people, like you're mentioning. But a lot of times what we do is we take each person's individual gifts and say, well, I need to be better in that area. Mm-hmm. But like you said, musicians compare themselves to other musicians. I'm sure actors compare themselves to other actors, you know, great chefs compare theirs. Everybody right. kind of looks in within their field, so to speak. Right. But a lot of times as Christian women, we look at other Christian women and each of their gifts that stands out we would like to be you all of them learn from them. Oh yeah. We can learn from them. But a lot of times mm-hmm. we, I don't know, I'm sure yeah, there are yeah. a lot of people who've gotten past that, but when I was younger, I do remember, thinking, uh, well, I should be better at this and I should be better at that. And I should get better at this. And I should, get... and I was taking all of the gifts mm-hmm. from other people and saying, well, I should have all of them, or I should be better mm-hmm. in all these ways as if I could achieve that. And I feel like it's so important to emphasize that God does want us to excel, you know, in the things he puts in front of us, but it's not everything. And so, for instance, I don't know that I'll ever excel in the musician (laughs) area. (laughs) I do not have those gifts like your sisters and you. I will never be a famous artist or, (laughs) you know, there's just certain things, we have time for, and we have God-given gifts for, and I think it's important to recognize what it is that God has given us. Mm -hmm. And also think about Solomon. When he prayed, he asked God for wisdom. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times when I pray for myself, or my children, I ask God that he would give us wisdom and understanding and also help us to know what is it that we're supposed to be excelling in? Like, what is it that you have given us to put our hands to so yeah. that we can develop the glory we're supposed to have? You know, because mm-hmm. there's so many things we can do in life, there's so many different directions that we can go to work with our hands and to glorify God. So, for you, how do you determine that like in your life you have children there's different phases in life at some point you were in the music industry now you have kids to raise you have a book about food you're a writer you know how do you figure out which direction do i go to develop my god given glory where you know because there are ways that people look at you and and you're shining you're you know amazing in certain areas so how did you say, okay, I can appreciate and have joy in the glory of others, but this is what I'm going to work on.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think you you definitely just have to pray a lot about those things because I do have a strong tendency to (laughs) overcommit and start too many things. My, My husband is another resource that God has given me to tell me, nope, you really don't need to do that. And at this point too, I'm, I'm entering into a season of homeschooling. So my eight, six and four year olds are all doing school now. And that has been a real, a huge blessing. I mean, I'm, I'm loving it so much. I'm enjoying the days so much and it is helping me, honestly, and having a baby too. At the same time, I think is helping me to have such a full mind that I'm not tempted to constantly grab new things and put them on my plate. For instance, you were talking about the, the podcast and this this season of the podcast. I've just begged Abigail to please do the podcast, but do it without me and I'll listen to it. And I'm <laughs> just gonna go for it. Yeah. So that's one example of just something that I was like, nope, there's just no space in my mind for this thing. And and I was telling my husband last night actually, we were walking just out here in the holler and I was just telling him how how blessed I feel right now, just in this moment in, in this season looking at these projects that I've had through the years. I've just, even like the books that have been out, I'm not doing any work with them at all, but just realizing like they're there and I I never have to think about them, but they're there. And somebody, if they ever pick them up and read them, you know, maybe the Lord uses them in someone's life, but it's not something I'm doing or thinking about at all. Or the podcast going, going forth kind of marching on without me, but it's still marching. And I don't have to be there. It's like a top that I was working really hard to spin at one point, but I'm not there spinning it anymore. And it's still spinning. We just opened a coffee shop in our hometown, me and some friends in the last like six months. So a good friend of mine who's single is the manager there and she's working full-time in this coffee shop. And I feel like it's blessing the community, but I'm not, like, I'm not there. I'm not in the coffee shop with the customers it's it feels like this top that i just got to spin. so i guess right now i feel like the top that i'm spinning with all of my might is my children and their education. and i'm even realizing that these are things that i'm going to feed all these resources of time and attention into each one of these children and at some point they're going to be like a top that i don't have my hands on anymore but that this is the season for me to be putting all the momentum that i possibly can into each one of those and, and it, it makes it really easy for me to say I don't need to do this podcast this season I don't need to say yes to that you know speaking thing or whatever it is it's like mm-hmm. I can say no to things because I'm so excited about these kids I guess at the moment but Anyway, mm-hmm. that's a long-winded way. <laughs> no, I I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. I think
0: it's so important to recognize we do have seasons, and that does give give you the freedom to let things go, or mm-hmm. to push them on the the wait side, the wait list. To podcast, mm-hmm. you may pick up later. Writing, you may pick up later. But for now, the task in front of you that God has clearly put in front of you is the education, raising, and education of your children. So. I think that's just a wonderful way to look at it is that we don't have to do everything all at once. Mm -hmm. And some things we've accomplished and can put, they they go by themselves, like you say, the coffee shop or your books. And and that's an amazing thing too, to be able to say, I've done that, they're going, and now I'm on to the next thing. And I don't have to touch that anymore. Yeah. Um, I also, I've had
1: some older ladies in my church just give some kind of advice through the years that I didn't always want to take, but. They just observed that my generation of moms seems like we're running around a lot more. I mean, in my, in my little church community, the people have been homeschooling for a lot of years. There's a lot of second generation homeschool kids who are now raising kids. In my mom's generation, they've just commented like, we were home all the time. We were home a lot. Mm -hmm. We were, we were home in order to get done all the things that we needed to get done at home. And it seems like there's a lot of like play dating. Running around for this and that, sports or whatever. Just the the running around seems more common for my group of people. And I do wonder if social media isn't kind of playing into that a little bit. That we are watching everybody, even what, even the dynamic you were just saying about thinking you have to be great at everything all the time, being great at everything that all the other people are being great at. I think that maybe social media does give us a little bit of that illusion, or at least. Mm Wants mm-hmm. to give us that illusion that it's possible for us to do all those things and be all those things because other people are doing them. I wonder if it isn't a little bit easier to shut that off and just say, "I'm going to stop that stream <laughs> of input
0: that tells me I need to be doing all those things and just be home." You know, well, it's, that's uh, where it I'm definitely at. is it a, a time waster? Can be. You can right. really get sucked right. into the dark black hole of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you all of a sudden realize an hour later is passed, and you're still looking at Facebook, which makes it mm-hmm. a lot harder to be good at that thing you mean because Exactly, to... you but do. You yes. Time for it. I have so recognized that that if you're on all the social media and keeping up with all of it, and not that there's anything wrong with looking at Facebook or Instagram, but just, you know, the constant habit right. of it, you don't you don't have time for developing some of those things that you might really want to develop in your life. Okay, moving on to your second book. The second book is titled Broken Bread, How to Stop Using Food and Fear to Fill Spiritual Hunger. So we are about to get into a menu and talk about food. This is a hospitality (laughs) podcast, (laughs) but I have to bring up this one. And I should mention the third book that she has written. It has not come out yet, but it it, it will release in the spring of 2024 through Canon Press. And it's called My Dear Hemlock. And she has cast a female character in this book, and it's similar to Screw Tape Letters. It sounds so interesting. I don't have a description for that, but I am really eager to see it come out in the spring. Back to Broken Bread, her second book. The description for Broken Bread is God cares more about how you eat than what you eat. Christians should have their heads on straight about food. But too often our eating is complicated by burdens and rules, by diets and dependencies. So how can we keep a spiritually healthy view of what we eat? Should Christians stop eating white sugar? Does the Bible ask us to go paleo? Most questions about food aren't really about nutrition, but about how we understand God. In Broken Bread, Tilly challenges us to abandon the concept of good and bad foods and instead offers a way to celebrate food without obsession. Make healthy choices without bondage to rules, feed our families without feeling frazzled, and find satisfaction without using food as an emotional crutch. This is not a diet book. You won't find any system or plan for eating, but it's rather a joyful call to develop a vision of Christ that informs the way you eat. Take delight in food again and discover a feast for today that whispers at the eternal feast to come. So, this definitely. Ties into us offering hospitality in our homes. And it, of course, this is very specific, talking about how to approach food, how to look at food. So give me a little bit of a background on that book. So
1: I think what was the instigating factor in that book was there was a, a high point, I feel like, for anti Gluten eating. <laughs> I don't remember around what years those were, but you remember it was about three or four years where it's yes. know, like everybody just suddenly was allergic to gluten. Mm-hmm. And um, in the meantime, my mother went vegan. She's still more or less vegan, but she went very suddenly from full meat to vegan, vegan. And then, you know, I personally intersecting with those things. I have a background of eating disorder behavior. So I had a real, really hard battle, hard war really with bulimia in college and out of college. That obviously has been a big journey and and was a a featured player in my conversion story. I came to know the Lord under counseling that was partially for the, you know, the bulimia was just Christian biblical counseling. So all that kind of converged a few years, whatever. 2018, 2017, 2018, 2019, is when I was working on this book, because I was seeing even in the church, a lot of women were showing up at people's houses, like bringing their own food. It seemed like every time you had someone over, you know, you had to ask a lot of questions about what people are eating or aren't eating at that moment. And it changes, seems like from week to week. And it just felt like very chaotic. And I, I was just disappointed, I guess, to look around and be, and feel as though we in the church really should be a little more we should understand this better. Like this shouldn't be this shouldn't be so complicated for all of us. So the the book is structured around these four ditches that I was kind of pitting against each other. So trying to remember now it's been a few years. One it was asceticism and gluttony. So like that kind of fear of pleasure, the diet, diet, diet mentality which I had been in as a young teen and had driven me into gluttony on the other end. And then snobbery and apathy so the snobbery was sort of this like using food as a social marker like i know about this ingredient that you have not heard about yet i am aware of these the pitfalls of this food that you don't know about yet that kind of thing versus apathy where you're just like get me a mcdonald's every day of the week and there's nothing better than that and i don't want to know about anything more you know so that those are the four kind of Almost poles mm-hmm. extremes. The ditches the we can fall into. Right, right. Yeah. So that, the, and then you know, there's a lot in there just about hospitality and about how cooking for other people was a huge part of me learning how to be with food. You know, comfortable with food myself with all the all the bulimia stuff. Cooking and eating with my full attention and really enjoying food enough was actually one of the big things that the Lord used to help me. Because with overeating and with kind of binging behavior, it's not really that you're enjoying the food too much. Like That's never really the issue. It's always that you are doing it while you're doing something else or you're, you're doing it. You haven't enjoyed it an hour, but you're still doing it. You're still eating something that wasn't even good the first time you ate it. <laughs> and just, I think real, real food, enjoying real food and cooking for real people. has
0: been a huge thing. Very helpful in your book, when you look at the different ditches people can fall in, how do you recommend they stay out of those ditches? The first passage I think of is in when Peter has the vision where God tells him if yeah. the food is clean. Yeah. And he keeps saying, you know, from his Jewish tradition, well, no, 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 this is not, this is, this can't be clean, you know, because there were some <laughs> things that the Jews could not eat. And of course the vision tells him that yes, now they are clean and to not judge the Gentiles for eating them. So that comes to mind. Yep. What else yep. would you recommend or from your book did you say, you know, how do we stay out of these ditches?
1: Well, it's really helpful because there these things are addressed several several times in in the epistles when it comes to how we're going to do this with other people. Like why is it that food and fellowship over food is such a big part of church culture building? And if we can't do that, then that's a big problem. It's a huge barrier, really, between people when you can't eat with them can't eat what they're eating. So obviously, for some people, there are things, there are reasons why you can't eat what what other people are eating. There are reasons why, you know, you can't do the peanut allergy thing. But what's great about all the passages that address this is that basically the bottom line is bend over backwards to love and serve the other person. So if you are a guest and you are on a diet, you should bend over backwards to eat what they've served you to be grateful for it. And if you're the host, then you're gonna bend over backwards to find out what you can serve them that is going to bless them. And you know, they can love, love on them in that way with the food. There's really helpful passages just outlining the way to go about those things when you're with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think. The one that you referenced with peter and just the idea that there are foods that that all foods are clean that all foods are it is possible to righteously eat anything it is actually very difficult for some of us to really believe mm-hmm. and if you just substitute you know sugar or donuts or fast food or whatever for some moms i think their consciences are really bound around this issue and I think part of that is just that we are tasked with feeding our families, and we are trying to, to raise children who can eat more than just hot dogs and chicken nuggets or whatever. And so, because that is so much of the work that we're trying to do to expand their their palates a little bit, I do think we can get into a mindset of this is the right way to eat, this is a wrong way to eat, and our kids will they take that on too you know, eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. It's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a challenging road to walk. Oh, for sure, because we do live we live with the problems of plenty. Like that's that is what we're living with in our culture. And so those are different than the problems of scarcity. We have we have all the food we could possibly want and all the kinds of food we could possibly want. But that does come with challenges that are relatively new to the human race. So mm-hmm.
0: yes, it is it, definitely it, a yeah. hard balance, like you mentioned. You're trying to feed your children good food, we do want them to know what delicious food is. You don't right. want to have them eating Cheetos and Dr. Pepper and McDonald's hamburger sandwiches every day. For the rest but of their lives. At, for the rest of their lives, which is not good food. But at the same, I mean, when we say good, healthy food, I'm sure to a child it tastes very good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you also don't want to have guilt over eating sugar. A donut, you know, a Saturday morning donut run or a favorite milkshake for when they get home from school or whatever it is you've decided to add in, there shouldn't be guilt associated with food. But I think on the flip side of that is a lot of times when moms put that on their kids or are so strong one particular way, they are raising rude children without recognizing it. Mm -hmm. So like the children, if it's preached, you know, you will never, ever, ever have sugar. The times that I've seen it, the parents have not taught their children how to graciously refuse sugar or, you know, whatever it is, maybe not sugar, maybe something else, but it's, it comes across as like. Very self righteous when they come into your yeah, house. Yeah, I mean, you know? yeah, children,
1: <laughs> children are so naturally self righteous,
0: and that, they don't recognize like any, any rule.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: they're so honest, you know. But it's just yeah. they're they're rather rude about what they can and can't have. Mommy, and, de- mommy doesn't poison us with pop tarts, <laughs> right? Well, we don't eat that at our house, or yeah, yeah, you know, We never go to McDonald's, <laughs> like right. Oh. I don't know why I'm yeah. feeling guilty all of a sudden. Yeah, I
1: think one of one this is so funny. One of the elders at our church, another another one of the young elders with my husband. I think a, a kid a kid once came up to him and was like, "Oh my goodness. I thought you were a Christian, but you're drinking a Coke."
0: Oh my <laughs> word. <That's> so
1: funny. <laughs> I'm really, certain that their parent did not tell them that. Oh, by exactly. But just for the record, that was an well, extrapolation.
0: <laughs> for sure. A lot of times kids take what's happening and just internalize yeah. it as God's truth. You know, and right. they, they do portray yeah. something. Parents would be shocked potentially to even like, oh, dear, we didn't mean for them to yeah. come across and say that. Well, speaking of food and delicious food to serve your family and guests, what is the favorite menu you might serve when you invite people to your home and that you also serve your family a menu that they love? So I was
1: going to say gumbo, but I just looked over your recent episodes and I saw that gumbo has already been on here very recently. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about gumbo.
0: Well, you can talk about gumbo too if you
1: want to. My parents are both from Louisiana so when we when we had people over growing up and whenever we had big family functions those those big cajun dishes work super well for big groups so it was always like a gumbo or or a jambalaya or red beans and rice or something but my personal favorite of the cajun group of dishes is etouffee so that's very similar to a gumbo but it's a butter roux instead of an oil roux at least in my family that's how it's done so it's a lighter a lighter roux instead of that deep dark chocolate gumbo roux, but this that is
0: sounds a delicious.
1: A lot of the same thing, except the way we do it is a crawfish etouffee. So, this is truly my favorite Cajun thing in the world to make. But it's the same three vegetables that you get in all of those Cajun dishes the onions, the green pepper, and the celery. But you're starting with the flour and the butter, and you bring it to like a golden brown instead of a dark chocolate, and so it's a lighter. I guess because you don't want to burn the butter. It's easier to burn the butter. But And then you get just crawfish, whatever, little like crawfish tails. You can get them in packets by the pound or whatever. And you serve that over rice or noodles, put a bunch of stock in there. So that is a great dish. That is a great dish. I could I could leave that as the number one. We're just now getting back into fall. So I feel like my horizons are expanding and contracting again of what, what I'm allowed to serve people. I'm really excited to get back into
0: Soup, because it's time. Time for soups. The etouffee sounds very fallish as well. That sounds like a comfort food. What would you... Stick to your ribs. Yes. What would you recommend if people can't find crawfish? I'm not sure that we could find a package up here. Like you said, you can buy the tails here, I guess, Um, in your local grocery store. I'm not sure we could. Maybe in the frozen section, I'll have to look. But what would you substitute in case we can't find it?
1: uh, Shrimp. Okay. Just like a shrimp etouffee.
0: And then you want to get like a smoked sausage.
1: A Cajun style would be good. But any smoked sausage that you slice up and brown is
0: great. And you mentioned serving it over rice. What else would you serve with that to make your menu? Do you do any vegetables on the side or a dessert? Yeah, I would. Right. I try to do a salad
1: and bread with any of those Cajun style dishes. I like to have a salad with most meals if I can for people. And I think, I mean, everyone's doing a lot of... Sourdough in my community, I think it's pretty big in Moscow too, sourdough baking, but I do really like to do a challah style bread, like an egg, like a sweeter egg bread that's braided, you know, or not whatever, but, but just, just a sweeter, lighter bread because those dishes are so heavy and oily and it just feels like a little sweeter, lighter bread is nice
0: with it. So pairs a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Cajun dessert?
1: No, I don't. Or know. do you serve dessert? If there is, yeah. I I serve dessert. I'll have sometimes I'll have people bring dessert because honestly, it's really hard for me to think of think about main dish and dessert at the same time. I'm not. I don't know why. Very one track. So if I ever do dessert, it might be a cookie or uh, something like that.
0: Well, that's um, a great tip. A lot of times, if you, it's a little bit overwhelming to do multiple. Mm-hmm. Handmade items. Yeah, grab a favorite cookie from the store. Or if you have guests saying, please let me bring something, assign them the dessert, assign them the salad. Or if you yeah. know they're a great bread baker, assign them the bread. A lot of times with close friends, you can do that. Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't know if I've ever had anyone come to my house without asking what they can bring. So that is even a very them, Southern thing. Yes, that mm-hmm. is a very Southern thing. And it's, mm-hmm. I don't think it's wrong not to do that, but I know in the South, that is just the first question you ask. It's immediate, yeah, like that's, that's just funny. part of the culture of, okay, well, what can I bring? And, yeah. and sometimes the host will say, you know, I've got it. Don't worry about it. But a lot of times, you know, you're going to be bringing your salad or your dessert or something. Yeah.
1: yeah I think I've gotten more and more willing to do that as the years have passed and and as I've had maybe more a few a few like two families instead of one family trying to do slightly larger groups it just makes way more sense to everybody to kind of pitch in but I have to say also I think every year that passes I get more and more casual I was just thinking about this this week that my my hospitality is getting
0: (laughs) sorry there's a little
1: way trying to get in this room. Hang on one second.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Speaking of hospitality. <laughs> Thought it
1: was going to happen. Um
0: <laughs> Well, you know, having young children, all eight mm-hmm. and under, your hospitality definitely would probably tend to be, to be a casual. bit more casual in order to pull that's it off. Exactly right. Yep. That's exactly what it is. I'm sure that's what it is. And I think it's
1: just doing more of it. You know, I'm just the, the kind of nerves from when i remember when i was first married having people over and just how intense that was for me like that was just so nerve-wracking i didn't know how to cook at all and so everything i did was just the first time you know and how did to you learn the how to just by doing it i mean by getting you know looking at some books and kind
0: of experimenting i know we have so many good resources now youtube and cooking shows you- and all of that yeah. Did you, you said you grew up in a family with seven children? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, did your mom just do all the cooking and not really have bring y'all into the kitchen? Did she kind of take over and say, well, this is, yeah. or how did, what was the dynamic yeah.
1: there? You know, you, she was fine about, she had me baking bread and doing a, th- a few things like that. I think I had one or two standard jobs, but I was the absent minded, like head in the clouds second child so my older sister probably left the house really knowing how to cook and I left the house knowing how to eat <laughs> so I was not easy looking back now you know I could I could choose to blame her for not having made me learn but I'm just I have a second child now and so I have very little to say about about that because you know
0: there are sometimes those kids that it's just like
1: trying to get them to With
0: it, be interested in all of the things that the older child is naturally interested in. That's true. You have different personalities and different ways. You have to kind of really pull one in where another one just loves doing it. So that is something to think about when you
1: have multiple children. The resources tend to flow towards you know the child that's interested in that thing. But it's my second born that is more at this moment a little more interested in cooking. So that's good. I would like to to definitely spit them out into the world knowing more about cooking than I knew that would be great but the casual thing I just I think part of what I've been trying to do is to make the scene between hospitality people coming over supper and and just us supper I want those to be closer and closer to each other like I want them I want them to be so similar that there's very little difference between them. I mean except for you know a special occasion like a whatever a fancy meal or a A holiday or something like that. I just, I think, yeah. And there's only really two ways of doing that. If your if your hospitality level is way up here and your family level is way down here, you can either bring your hospitality level down, or you can bring your family meal level up. And I think I've done mostly bringing the hospitality level down, but a little bit of bringing the family (laughs) up. I think mostly it's been like, okay, now we just do burgers. This is just normal life.
0: Pizza, yeah. Like
1: I want to be able to just make a little more of whatever we're doing and bring someone into it and it not be a big thing. So, Well,
0: if you're doing that, two things are accomplished. The people that are coming in are feeling like your family, like they are really welcome into your family life. Not a show is not being put on. They're not being entertained and everyone's tiptoeing around to do some fancy event that normally never happens. And two, you do it a lot more. If you can (laughs) just make extra hamburgers, you can, instead of having to think, I cannot have people over unless some fancy event occurs and we lay out the china (laughs) or the plates a step down from the china, you're not going to do it if you constantly think, I have to have this big event. So I love that idea. So with this menu, do you do any sort of shortcuts or time savers when you're in a a crunch? Can you make it ahead of time? Or really, is it kind of, okay, I really need to make this right before people come over?
1: No, every one of those stew style Cajun soups are better if you make them the day before. They all are improving with time. I mean, not too much time,
0: but (laughs) some time. (laughs) Right. Um, oh, really and, the rat, ri- you could probably make the rice the day of, or do you put it in? Yeah, you would. I, I do rice in an Instapot now. So I'm
1: always, I'm a huge fan of the Instapot for rice because I don't have to worry about the rice at all. It's always consistent. Just press a button. Yeah. Just press that button. And then this, you know, the, the bread you want to bake the day of. So if you can get the, the stew done, maybe the day before that's helpful. It just depends on what, what the day's like. I, I would say that the, the etouffee is like a 45 minute dish. That's, not, that's bad. not bad. It's really not.
0: Yeah. So what is your best prep tip when you're having people over? You did mention you want it to just flow seam- seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Having them in should just feel like another family night, another family dinner. But you are having more people, having to set more places at the table. How do you prep? What is your best advice for preparing to have extras into your home?
1: I basically have made it a habit, almost no matter what I'm serving, I have people get their own plates now, like I just do. I have a smaller kitchen than I used to have, but it has an island right in the middle that just makes sense. For service. So I'm more likely to plate my own family's food, but I'm, I never plate any guest food really anymore. So it's always going to be, the preparation is basically just making sure the surfaces are decently clean. You have a little section of the counter where your drinks are so people know where the drinks are. And then you have a little line set up with your bowls and your your different parts of the soup. And you put your spoons in a little mug so people can grab their spoons and you get your Tonys or your Slap Your Mama. You have to decide what kind of a family you are. (laughs) Are you the Tonys family or the Slap Your Mama family?
0: We've gone through containers Uh, with both. Right.
1: That's funny. I think for some reason, when we got married, we had a strange conversation once where we were deciding are we Tony's or Slap Your Mama? And it didn't occur to me that we could just buy both. That's hilarious.
0: Well, we started (laughs) off as Tony's and we moved into Slap Your Mama. So, and it's funny because I think Slap Your Mama is everywhere now. I think you Uh can buy it up here in the Northwest. Right. But But when it first came out, when it was kind of the new. Cajun uh-huh. seasoning. Who even knows what sentence I would be saying, but you know, I love slap your mama. Have you, you know, whatever. And they're like, what, what <laughs> <laughs> slap your mama, what are you saying? That's right like, now?" <laughs>
1: that's like bo- right, Boudreaux's right. <laughs> butt paste. Have, yes. you, have you used Boudreaux's butt paste? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is far and away the best I think of all the diaper creams, <laughs> but <Yes. laughs> I, I just like saying it.
0: So, yes, that's a, a great side note. That's something you definitely need on your Cajun bar. So what is your best advice for showing warm hospitality? You're, you've are prepped, people are coming over. How do you make your home feel warm and welcoming? And when they walk in, you're ready for them and they know that you are wanting them to be there and they feel at home.
1: Well, I do think that doing this style that I, I mean, bringing the casual level down the way that I was just talking about and choosing these dishes that are kind of ready by the time they arrive, you know, there's not a lot left to do on them. I do think it it has helped me at least to be a little more present when they, you know, by the time they're there and they're walking in, I'm I'm done, you know, Mm -hmm. so there might be, I might be pulling a bread out of the, out of the oven or something, but I'm done. And then the other kind of policy that I've tended to have, and we always, we, we do, I mean, we make it the way, the way that it is when it's just our family. We sing the doxology or some other song to open the meal. And we make sure that parents have a seat and kids maybe have a seat. <laughs> but I think one of the other policies that I've set through the years is that I don't do the dishes usually with while the guests are still there. If I do, it's because they suggested and they're going to do it with me. Mm -hmm. which sometimes will happen, but if they don't think of it, then I will usually just be like, I'm going to do that later. Or maybe in the morning, Mm -hmm. I'm just not willing to waste the time that I could be doing conversation, I guess, and being off in the kitchen. So, which is totally, you know, if someone was making a different choice, I could see a great case for doing the dishes. But I think for me, I've just found like by the time I get someone over my house and, with little children, if I manage to start an actual conversation with someone, I am going to hang on to that until it's over. And then dishes can wait.
0: You only get your guests for a short time. They're only there for a few hours at the most. And if you head off into the kitchen, you are missing the stories, the laughter, the conversation. What is your must-have kitchen item and where can we find it? You mentioned you love your Instapot. So, I yeah. think that's definitely a must have that for counts. sure. Yeah, that counts.
1: So that's, that's something I am. I think somehow I ended up with two of them in two different sizes. And I definitely love it for the rice, but I also love it for a lot of those other like soups and things because it's just so. I do, I also do a lot of beans and they make beans really easy. Those things do. So, and like for instance, right now we're trying to bring some lunch items into our little coffee shop here in town and my first thought about how to make soups happen there is like oh the shop just needs to have an instapot you can throw things in there in the morning and it'll be done by lunchtime and we have a soup ready to go so I definitely it's it's changed the way I do some things So, yeah
0: that's a great idea from all your years of hospitality do you have a story for us what The one that comes to mind is because we just happened to be talking about
1: Instapots. I melted my, I set my Instapot on my stove and then the stove, someone walked by through the line when they were getting their soups, so everyone went through the line and someone knocked the burner of the electric stove top and turned it on. And I fused my Instapot to my electric stove. No. When I say I, I mean, I put it on there foolishly and then someone else did the, did the dirty work. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So you had to replace that Instapot, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah. You know, I kept the Instapot and then I gave it t- to a friend in 2020 with a meal inside of it because they had, when they had COVID <laughs> and I just got that Instapot back last week. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she thought that she had damaged the bottom of the pot because I didn't tell her about that. And she she found a part and replaced the bottom of the Instapot. So it just goes to show you. That's a pretty good story. Goes to show you. If you bring someone a meal in 2020 and forget that you owned another Instapot, (laughs) it could come back to you all fixed and ready to go. You just never know.
0: That is a great story. Don't tell your friends. When something's damaged,
1: they might might replace it themselves. (laughs) Uh,
0: That's pretty great. Instapots are really fabulous. I need to use mine more. I really, I've said that so many times, like, oh, I need to use it more. And I have started using it more, but then I still forget about it. I don't know why. Let's they get
1: rid of it then. Honestly, and I just praise the Instapot, but seriously, I'm not a gadget person. Like I don't, I do not stand Having extra things in the kitchen because I have a small space. Yeah. So like someone gave my parents gave me a, a one of those air fryers that everyone's so big into. Uh-huh. They love their air fryer. They're they're enjoying it. They're using it all the time for two people, you know. So I try to make potatoes for my family in the air fryer, and it made like five bites of potatoes. I don't know what you can fit in there, but it's not enough potatoes to actually make potatoes in. So I used it twice, I guess, on different things, and then I said goodbye. You don't belong in my kitchen. You can move right. along now because I don't have room for I don't for have time a for a large that does one thing.
0: Yeah. Yes. For a large right. family, you're having to do such big quantities. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, for most it's, for it's most it's large families, I could see how it's a lot more beneficial for people that have just a couple of you're people one or, two. or one or two. And maybe there's three. some dish.
1: Yeah. Maybe there's some dish that I did not discover that would have been the perfect dish for the air fryer, but I did not discover it. And I just... I think if it doesn't have about 10 jobs, then it can't live with me anymore.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day and for letting those four little kids stay with dad or whoever's watching them. (laughs) Yeah, I can (laughs) see
1: them right now running past my window. (laughs) (laughs) They're wondering, when will mom be back? (laughs) That's what they're wondering. Yep. All right. Well, it's been a joy, Bess. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for
0: coming in. Yes, until next
1: time, bye for now.